The New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel of John, the first chapter. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being is life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of, father, as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It has been a hard week. A week of confrontation and violence. A week of peaceful protests and terrible injustice. A week where we have had to confront hard truths about our country and within ourselves. A week where hundreds and at times thousands have gathered together to be seen, all the while trying to maintain social distance and keep ourselves apart for fear of a deadly virus that we cannot see. Faris Kalima has been peacefully protesting daily in downtown Atlanta for the last week. Last Sunday night, the police were trying to clear an area around Centennial Park as it was getting dark. And as the protests were coming to a close, they fired tear gas into the crowd. When the smoke lifted, Kalima, who is black, found himself face to face with a white police officer, Lieutenant Knapp. 
And if you were to take a simple still shot of their exchange, you would see two men facing off against each other, the gap between them full of anger. I have been struck over and over this week by the images of confrontation of battle lines drawn, protesters lined up facing armed police lines, and the expressions on the faces of those pictured on both sides, the rage, the stoic stares, the sadness is gripping. But what has stood out to me as well is the gap, the space that exists between the two sides. And the gap itself is filled with fear. Fear of the other, fear of safety, fear that one's humanity, worth and value will not be seen, fear for one's life. So what do we do with this gap? With this space between ourselves and others, with this gap that is so fraught with pain and fear? In the church, we speak of this gap as sin. The things that separate us from our relationship with God and one another. We name sin as the distance between who we are and who we are created to be as humans made in the image of God. Sin, as theologian Dan Migliori puts it, is the refusal to live in ways that reflect God's own life in communion. And if sin is that which separates us from God, that which prevents us from mirroring God's divine love in our own lives, then striving to deepen our relationship with God offers us a guiding light to follow through the present darkness. And perhaps that is where God's word this Trinity Sunday can offer us wisdom and guidance. Because in order to understand the depth of our sin and separation and how God's grace can close that gap, we have to understand what the contrasting divine grace-filled communion looks like. The Gospel of John begins with an image of God in relationship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus, the word, was with God and was God. Before we can understand Jesus' relationship with humanity, with us, we must first understand Jesus' relationship within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. St. Augustine in the fourth century tried to capture the nature of the triune God by describing God as a relationship of perfect love. The one who gives love, the one who receives love, and the power of love. Love, lover, beloved, and love itself. And throughout John's gospel, we see this dynamic relationship play out as Jesus speaks of his love for God. Jesus is often called the beloved, the recipient of unconditional parental love. But love requires mutuality. And Jesus also loves God, whom he calls father. 
And while the Spirit, the Spirit often plays third fiddle in our conversations about the Trinity, the Spirit, that pesky Spirit, is not the subject or the object, but the verb, the act of love itself. In this season of Pentecost, it is the Spirit that fills the gap between the lover and beloved, between Father and Son, in a way that brings that relationship to life. With the Spirit's binding power, the lover and beloved exist in perfect relationship and can never be separated. The Gospel of John is, of course, not the first time that we get a glimpse of this relationship of divine love. In this morning's Old Testament text, we meet Abraham sitting by an oak tree in the middle of the day. And the Lord appeared before him in the form of three strangers. We know nothing about these strangers. No names, no backstory, no sense of where they were coming from or going to. All we know is that Abraham ran out to meet them and offered hospitality to them, water, bread, and a place to rest. And the word of this trio and trio of angelic visit, visitors came back as a reaffirmation of the hope and promise that Abraham had received from God. When artists try to capture biblical narratives, the focus of a painting, where the characters are placed and where the light shines, tells us whose presence is most important and where our eyes should go. In 1411, Andrei Rublev painted an icon of the hospitality of Abraham, depicting today's Old Testament story for the abbot of the Trinity Monastery in Russia. And while his work is titled The Hospitality of Abraham, the icon depicts only the three heavenly visitors, all dining together around a table with a central cup. Abraham and Sarah are nowhere to be found in the painting. Instead, Rublev realized that the focal character of the story was the triune God. His piece, which is now regarded as one of the best artistic depictions of the Trinity, depicts these three guests as one Lord. Each holds a rod in his left hand, symbolizing their equality. Each wears a cloak of blue, the color of divinity. And the face of each is exactly the same, depicting their oneness, as they each are turned toward the other two. In Rublev's depiction, the triune God is not about power over one another, but about equally receiving one another and equally giving to one another. Henry Nouwen, the Dutch Catholic priest and theologian, reflects on Rublev's icon in this way. He says, the more we look at this holy image with the eyes of faith, the more we come to realize that it is painted not as a lovely decoration for a convent church, nor as a helpful explanation of a difficult doctrine, but as a holy place to enter and stay within. 
As we place ourselves in front of the icon in prayer, we come to experience a gentle invitation to participate in that intimate conversation that is taking place among the three divine angels and to join them around the table. We come to see with our inner eyes that all engagements in this world can only bear fruit when they take place within the divine circle, the house of perfect love. When it comes to deepening our relationship with God, we long to find a place in that house of perfect love. In this season of racial tensions and social distance, we yearn to know where we can go to rest in the presence of God. We wonder what it is we can do to be welcomed into that divine circle. Perhaps if we could just worship in the sanctuary, we think, or maybe if we pray fervently enough or advocate for justice loudly enough. But being welcomed into the perfect house of love isn't a matter of right location or perfect action. It's a matter of posture throughout our whole lives. It's a matter of opening our hearts to grace-filled relationship with God and then reflecting that same posture of love and grace toward our neighbors who are also made in the image of God. But because sin clouds our ability to enter into that loving relationship, the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus, the one who knows this perfect relationship with God, walked among us, with us, beside us. The Greek is literally, he pitched his tent among us. When it comes to assuming a posture of grace-filled relationship, it is the word made flesh, Jesus the Christ, who shines light into the darkness to show us the way. Again and again throughout the Gospels, we witness the ways that Jesus welcomed those who were other, those society kept at a distance. Women, lepers, foreigners, sinners, tax collectors, children, we witness the ways that Jesus welcomed those who were other into that house of perfect love. Every time he reached out his hand in welcome, every time he offered healing that brought wholeness, every time he shared a meal, he closed the gap. He removed the barriers that separated them from others and God simply by seeing them as God's beloved. When Jesus looked at anyone, he saw the image of God being reflected back in the face of the other. And so to be in perfect relationship with God, he also had to pursue a relationship of love with the person right in front of him. Jesus' greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength and soul and love your neighbor as you love yourself 
is an invitation to nurture our relationship with God by living out an embodiment of that divine relationship with others. There were lots of difficult moments this week, but there were also moments that gave us glimpses of what transformation might be possible. While the still photo of Kalima and Knapp was ripe with confrontation, the video tells a different story. Kalima had been protesting daily and he had worked tirelessly this week to be one who bridges the gap. As the tear gas cleared on Sunday night, he courageously asked Knapp to walk with the protesters. Give us 10 minutes of walking with us and they'll go home peacefully, I promise, he said. Something in that moment shifted. And instead of experiencing further confrontation and threat, they saw the humanity in one another. Despite the 9 p.m. curfew inching closer and danger all around, Kalima and Knapp walked together, as did other police and protesters. I can't tell you whether either of them was aware of the image of God in the other, but in that moment, they closed the gap and walked together. And the space between them, even for just a moment, was filled with peace. Perhaps at that moment, we saw a glimpse of the kingdom of God shine through the darkness. The sin of systemic racism and white supremacy in this country has been on display once again this week. It is collective and it is individual. It is not new. And untangling ourselves from this brokenness is going to require all of us standing in confession before a merciful God. It is going to take thousands of moments like Kalima and Knapp had, to begin to open space where justice can roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But God offers us glimpses of what the divine relationship looks like, one of mutuality and love. And Jesus, the word made flesh, shows us again and again what it looks like to embody that relationship with our neighbors. John's Gospel says, from Christ's fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And that grace is both a gift and a call. A gift extended to us through Christ that nothing can separate us from God's love. And a call that invites us to amend our posture toward God and our posture toward others into a posture of love and humility, a posture of listening and learning, a posture that acknowledges the image of God, not just in people who look like you or me, but in our black and brown brothers and sisters as well. Imagine what could be possible 
if we assume a posture of openness that allows the Spirit's powerful love to fill the space between us. Until thy kingdom come. Amen.